Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. I am Jonathan Capehart, in for Joy Reid. We begin the readout tonight with Kevin McCarthy's Republican boycott of the Select Committee investigating January 6th. It's clear his decision is already backfiring on his party, but no amount of bluster can cover up McCarthy's ineptitude nor his guilty conscience. As Trump's most obedient servant, he's trying to whitewash January 6th and cover up Trump's role in the violence because, according to Trump, the crowd he summoned to Washington that day was, quote, loving. And yes, he really said that, loving. Not only that, Trump actually blamed the Capitol Police for, quote, letting them in. It was a loving crowd, too, by the way. There was a lot of love. I've heard that from everybody. Many, many people have told me that was a loving crowd. In all fairness, the Capitol Police were ushering people in. The Capitol Police were very friendly. You know, they were hugging the kids. You don't see that. But disturbing video evidence released by the government at the request of news outlets clearly shows otherwise. Capitol Police engaged in literal hand-to-hand combat with the insurrectionists who showed no regard for the, quote, blue lives they claimed to support. This was not the loving crowd that Trump describes. Rather, it was a literal MAGA army. And it was Trump who gave them their marching orders. All of them were duped by the mass delusion that is the big lie. By boycotting the investigation, McCarthy and his cohorts are now turning their backs on the very police who bravely defended their lives. And they're snubbing the four officers who will be delivering testimony at the committee's first hearing next week. And in doing so, the GOP remains complicit in Trump's lies, an alternate universe where, quote, Hate is love, violence is peace, and the pro-Trump attackers are patriots, as the Associated Press put it. In fact, a majority of Trump voters say that January 6th was, quote, patriotic. And House Republicans have no intention of disabusing them of that notion, even when our democracy hangs in the balance. Listen to Speaker Pelosi on that point. Some of you were here that day as well, so you can attest to the fact that it was not all love, hugs, and kisses. This is deadly serious. This is about our Constitution. It's about our country. It's about assault on the Capitol that is being mischaracterized for some reason at the expense, at the expense of finding the truth for the American people. This committee represents the last best chance to get to the bottom of what happened on January 6th. And when it comes to the makeup of that committee, Democratic Speaker Nancy Pelosi has actually been a better advocate for Republicans than their own leader. She's already appointed Congresswoman Liz Cheney and is now weighing additional Republicans like Adam Kinzinger, among others. In other words, it's going to be a bipartisan committee, whether Kevin McCarthy likes it or not. Joining me now are Congresswoman Madeline Dean of Pennsylvania. She was an impeachment manager earlier this year and serves on the Judiciary Committee. And David Jolly, former Republican congressman from Florida, who is no longer affiliated with the party. Thank you both very much for, for coming to the readout. Congresswoman Dean, 
Let me play for you um, what Jim Jordan had to say, um, who he who he blames for the insurrection. And I'll talk to you on the other side. I don't think they're going to address the fundamental question, the fundamental question of why wasn't there a proper uh, proper security presence at the Capitol that day? They're not going to address that. And only one person can answer that question. Only one. Speaker of the United States House of Representatives. Congresswoman Dean, I'm not going to have you uh, address Congressman Jordan unless you want to. But you were there that day. One of the one of the many iconic pictures that come out of January 6th was a photo of you in a gas mask in the House gallery uh, being evacuated. I would just love your reaction to to what House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy is saying about that day and his and what he's doing or not doing about that day. Well, Jonathan, it's a pleasure to be with you and also, of course, to be with uh, David Jolly. Uh, Jonathan, I don't know if you remember, but the first time I met you was in Selma with John Lewis. Yes, as we that's crossed right. the Pettis Bridge. I think about him in that moment a lot. Uh, what are we to make of the lunacy of Donald Trump, who called it love and hugs and kisses? Uh, we should call it delusional, as you just did. But what are we to make of elected leaders like Jim Jordan, Mr. McCarthy, who have tethered themselves so desperately to this lunatic, delusional set of lies uh, that it's extraordinarily dangerous for the country. I'm extremely proud of the speaker. Uh, she made a difficult, thoughtful decision in disqualifying uh, Mr. Jordan, Mr. Banks from the committee. But really, in effect, they had completely disqualified themselves in their thoughts and in their actions. Imagine the deflection that Mr. Jordan attempts there it's torturous. It's not going to convince anybody uh, that somehow this is an investigation of Speaker Pelosi. What happened on January the 6th, and thank you uh, for recognizing I was there, it's still, mm -hmm. it's still incomprehensible to me that that happened, that Americans incited by an American president attacked Americans using our flag, using a Trump flag, beating other members uh, they would have beaten any one of us. They would have killed any one of us. They would not have distinguished if I was a Republican or a Democrat. They came to hang, to assassinate, to kill, to do violence. Uh, so the speaker has done the right thing. What we must get at now, six months after this insurrection, are the facts and the truth. Let them take, the, take us where they may. It may tell us uh, that some people were involved. It may tell us that some people were not involved at all. Uh, but we need to know what did people know in advance? What did the president, for example, know in advance? What did he know on the day? And importantly, uh, what was he doing thereafter? Why did he not send help? It's complicity uh, in, in that inaction. And, you know, David Jolly, um, I'm going to latch on to a word that Congresswoman Dean just said, um, tethered. The fact that House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy is tethered to Donald Trump. Jim Jordan is tethered to Donald Trump, and both of them are tethered to the big lie uh, that led yeah. to folks coming to Washington. Can you please explain, because you served with those folks when you were in, when you were in Congress. Why are they tethered to someone who has no reverence whatsoever for the Constitution of the United States? 
Yeah, Jonathan, I've come a long way from providing deference to my former colleagues. What I would say is this, Donald Trump himself is delusional, he's dishonest, and he's a fraud. Kevin McCarthy, Jim Jordan, they're just political scoundrels. Right? They actually do, they know the truth, they're, they're engaging in the lie for their own political viability, for their own political interest. And they're also doing it in a very manipulative way. Look, what you heard from Jim Jordan in that clip is a classic debate technique. We want to know why the capital security wasn't on a stronger footing. That's a legitimate question. And actually, this committee, as the facts go where they may, they should get an answer to that. But that is a deflection from what actually caused the insurrection, what actually caused the near violent overthrow of the peaceful transition of power here on U.S. soil. And so Jim Jordan, Kevin McCarthy, they're engaging in the big lie because they have to protect themselves politically from it. And at the end of the day, what you are seeing by McCarthy, Jordan and others is an effort to get past the events of January 6th. Right. These were Republicans that stormed the Capitol. They were not mm -hmm. Democrats. There is no value for Republicans politically in discussing the events of January 6th and where both parties and all politicians should be asking the same exact questions to get to the same exact facts. That's not the agenda of Republicans. Republicans want to now paint this as a partisan, uh, a partisan exercise by Speaker Pelosi, and they're going to run against Nancy Pelosi's continued so leadership of the House after the midterms, and they're going to run against themes of socialism. They're not going to talk about the events of January 6th. And so then, David, to that point, then, do you think, will a committee that includes or only has Liz Cheney, maybe they do get Adam Kinzinger, maybe they do get maybe another Republican, do you think that that type of bipartisan committee would hold whatever they find, would those findings hold muster at all with with the with the Republican base? Or should that committee just start their hearings on Tuesday knowing that no matter what they do, no matter what they find, half the country is not going to believe them? Yeah, we, get, we often engage in the political analysis, right? The last 24 hours, was it good for McCarthy, good for Pelosi? I think they both got out of it the political narrative that is important for them. Nancy Pelosi gets to say, look, we're trying to get the truth. Kevin McCarthy gets to say this is now a Pelosi exercise. At the end of the day, Jonathan, though, the, the question of the political impact is not the important one. The question is the truth-telling impact. And I think what this committee will do, Democrats have shown they want to do the right thing just for the sake of doing the right thing. Get as much information out into the sunlight as possible so the American people understand what led to the events of January 6th, the actors behind it, and allow the American people to make their political judgment in the next election who they trust to lead the nation. Because at the end of the day, what the nation will learn, what they will be affirmed of, is these were Republicans that attacked the Capitol on January 6th. They were not Democrats, and they are being protected by Republican leadership in the United States today. Well, let me ask a Democrat, but who's not a member of Congress, let me bring in Democratic strategist Juanita Tolliver. Juanita, welcome to the readout. I would love to get your, your assessment of where things are. Do you think Speaker Pelosi uh, played this right by calling Kevin McCarthy's bluff and saying, um, hell to the no to Jim Jordan and Jim Banks. Essentially, right, Jonathan, she is doing what needs to be done by taking and holding her veto power to make sure that two people who not only further Trump's lies, but also help to spread lies and information that incited the attacks on January 6th to keep them off of this select committee and from making that select committee a circus. As David said earlier, 
Jim Jordan is already deploying deflection and distraction tactics. That's all that he would have done on the select committee, but he would have gone even further. As we know, he would have brought in his obsession with groups like Black Lives Matter or with groups like Antifa mm -hmm. into the fold as well. And so what Pelosi is saying is no, none of that here, not on my watch. And what I think is also critical here is that while we know McCarthy has made every effort to obstruct this, right, he kept his caucus from supporting that independent bipartisan committee where they would have had veto power over, over subpoenas. He, he's threatened any Republican who would work on the select committee. And now he's already fundraising off of the January 6th select committee. So it's very clear that his job and his intention this entire time was obstruct any truth finding process. And he has not been successful here. And mm -hmm. I think what he's failing to realize is that Speaker Pelosi meant what she said when she said this is going to run for as long as it takes to get to the truth. And that includes September, October, November 2022, where yep. this will absolutely be front and center on voters' minds as more information comes out. I think David has a great point about it depends on what information comes out to make it noteworthy for voters, but absolutely getting to the truth, making sure this doesn't happen again. So folks like Representative Dean does not find herself in a life-threatening situation is critical here. And Speaker mm -hmm. Pelosi said this is serious deadly business, and she's going to run this committee accordingly. And, you know, and to that point, people need to understand that for Speaker Pelosi, her reverence of the Constitution is second. Her her faith in the Constitution is, is second only to her Catholic faith. She takes her role as a constitutional author, officer of the United States government very, very seriously. Uh, Congresswoman Dean, I'll give you the last question, and that is this. How concerned are you about political blowback from the GOP, from Republicans, from conservatives um, over the speaker forging ahead with with the committee and its investigations with only one Republican? I'm not worried at all. Uh, Speaker Pelosi said today that her responsibility was to get at the truth. And Mr. McCarthy actually obviously overplayed his hand. She is not going to allow a clown car on a matter as serious as an insurrection that threatened the lives of every member of Congress, including the vice president of the United States. This is a serious matter for serious people. Uh, Mrs. Pelosi did the exact right thing today. And Mr. McCarthy, I'm sure tonight, is wondering why did he overplay his hand? The American people will watch these hearings. They will care what happened. We have now a bipartisan forum uh, with Liz Cheney. Uh, and if we get other Republican members like uh, Adam Kinzinger, good. Uh, but we have a quorum. The American people will watch intently for the truth and the facts, less for the politics. They want to know what happened. Why was their capital attacked by Americans, incited by the president? Why did that happen? And most importantly, Jonathan, and I know you know this, how do we make sure it never happens again? And with that, we are going to leave it there. Congresswoman Madeline Dean, Juanita Tolliver, David Jolly, thank you all very much for coming to The Readout. Up next on The Readout, the politics behind the sudden push by Republicans to get people vaccinated. But what consequences should there be for the people who continue to spread vaccine fear and misinformation? Also, new research on the voter suppression crisis shows that an already bad situation is getting much worse. Plus, the Biden administration's new crackdown on gun violence. All that. The readout continues after this.
Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. The Delta variant of the COVID-19 virus has led to a massive surge in cases, ripping through communities with low rates of vaccination. This week, just three states, Florida, Texas, and Missouri, accounted for 40% of all cases nationwide. Uh, Here's what the governor of one of those states had to say about the vaccine. If you are vaccinated, fully vaccinated, the chance of you getting seriously ill or dying from COVID is effectively zero. If you look at the people that are being admitted to hospitals, uh, over 95% of them are either not fully vaccinated or not vaccinated at all. And so these vaccines are saving lives. They are reducing mortality. I'm suffering from rhetorical whiplash. That was indeed Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, the same Ron DeSantis who sells merchandise mocking the pandemic and Dr. Fauci on his website and who said today he will fight mask mandates in schools. Mixed messages about the vaccine are also coming from Fox News, the cable news epicenter for anti-vax hysteria, which may explain or, yeah, it'll explain why the Lincoln Project went after them in its latest ad. The Americans who are dying from COVID are almost all not vaccinated. Rupert Murdoch was vaccinated. Does anyone really think Tucker Carlson isn't vaccinated? But Murdoch's Fox News continues to put Americans at risk by pushing anti-vax hysteria. It's dangerous, immoral. Fox News is helping kill Americans. Joining me now is Dean Obidala, columnist for MSNBC and The Daily Beast and host of The Dean Obidala Show on Sirius XM, and Dr. Bernard Ashby, a Miami cardiologist. Thank you both very much for coming to The Readout. Dr. Ashby, I want to start with you. Um, because on the one hand, we, we've got the we've got the disinformation and misinformation. Uh, NBC is reporting that Facebook, there are Facebook dance parties, um, anti-vaccine groups changing into dance parties on Facebook to avoid detection. Um, and the ban evasion efforts on, on Facebook and Instagram are ratcheting up as the White House has increased pressure on social media platforms uh, to do more to contain misinformation. And then on top of that, the White House is debating whether to reinstate a mask mandate. This is from yesterday. White House officials debate masking push as COVID infections spike. Top White House aides and Biden administration officials are debating whether they should urge vaccinated Americans to wear masks in more settings as the Delta variant causes spikes, according to six people familiar with the discussions. Dr. Ashby, 
Uh, as a doctor, please, how is the disinformation playing where you are and among your patients? Well, good evening. Pleasure to be here. And I don't even know where to get started. I mean, as we all know, vaccine hesitancy is a real issue. And mm-hmm. as you can see, uh, our politicians are doing what they do. They're playing politics. While we physicians are literally on the front lines doing what we've been doing for the past year and a half plus, trying to save our patients' lives. And at this point, a lot of doctors, a lot of nurses, a lot of respiratory therapists, et cetera, they're, they're suffering from burnout. This, this feels like PTSD because uh, you saw DeSantis there. I mean, his strategy for dealing with the virus is getting vaccinated. Of course, we understand that. I wish he would have talked about vaccinations back, uh, you know, when they first months came ago. out. Because yeah. Months ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because he got his vaccination and didn't tell anybody. Okay? Did, didn't didn't advertise it at all when it was politically expedient to him. Now, when it's, it's politically expedient to him, he's, he's advertising it. Stop sending the mixed messages because if you're talking about Fauci and Fauci, uh, fascism and all this crap, mm-hmm. that's only feeding into the, the, the misinformation, the disinformation, and the, the mixed communication that people are receiving. And we have to speak as one. And so at this point, all I care about is less people dying. And what we're seeing is in Florida at this point in the pandemic is just unacceptable. And, you know, Dean, one of the purveyors of, of misinformation and disinformation is Fox News. Um, mm-hmm. That that Lincoln Project ad is pretty devastating in sort of calling out the hypocrisy. But you're doing more than that, Dean. You wrote for um, for MSNBC yesterday. Um, Fox News COVID vaccine denials can't go unpunished. I filed a complaint with the Federal Trade Commission on Tuesday. Here's hoping it moves forward. Talk about why are you filing? Why did you file that complaint with the FTC? What's your goal? Because I'm tired of screaming at my television set, Jonathan, or screaming on my radio show about something needs to be done. So I'm a lawyer. I did research over the weekend. I saw the COVID-19 Consumer Protection Act, which was passed in December, under the auspice of the FTC. It seemed like the perfect fit. This new law is to protect people, the public, consumers, from people peddling misinformation for profit about COVID, about the cures, about mitigation practices. And that's what Fox News has been doing. You know, Media Matters did a great job quantifying it. In about the last two weeks, nearly 57% of the segments Fox News did on COVID, which was over 120 plus, nearly 57% were to convince you not to get the vaccine through telling you they're coming to take your freedoms to actually lying about the vaccine and being dangerous. And, you know, we can debate all day why Fox News does it. Is it to hurt Joe Biden? Is it somehow for to make their base who watches the shows angry? But we can all agree on this, Jonathan. This is a big company, made $1.5 billion last year in revenue. Hmm. This is a business decision by the network. So I filed a complaint. I hope others do. It'll take you two to three minutes on the FTC website to open an investigation by the FTC to see if they are deceptive practices. Should there be an injunction and should there be damages? Oh, and I was about to ask you, what what would the punishment be? Let's say you're successful. Do you have any idea how Fox could be punished? I would get Tucker Carlson's show. I'd be the new host on 8 o'clock on Fox News. No, the, the reality is that they could get an injunction against them. There could be damages. I just hope that the FTC chair, Lena Khan, announces an investigation. I know countless people are filing complaints as well. Mm-hmm. Maybe that right. will cause some, some responsibility at that network.
Dean Obadala, Dr. Bernard Ashby, thank you very much for coming to the readout. Up next, voter suppression efforts across the country are not only real, they're getting worse. And this despite not a single state being able to provide even a shred of evidence showing widespread voter fraud. Stay with us. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. As Congress continues to fight over the filibuster and delay passing a voting rights bill, state Republicans continue to do everything, everything they can to suppress the vote before next year's midterms. A new report by the Brennan Center for Justice found that since the beginning of the year, 18 states have enacted 30 laws restricting voting access. That's despite zero states producing zero evidence of widespread voter fraud in the 2020 election. Without intervention from Congress, the voter suppression efforts won't stop. The Brennan Center reports that more than 400 voter suppression bills have been introduced in 49 states this year. With me now, Menalee Campbell, president and CEO of the National Coalition on Black Civic Participation, and Ari Berman, senior reporter for Mother Jones and author of Give Us the Ballot. Thank you both very much for coming to The Readout. Ari, let me start with you. You're not surprised by this Brennan Center report at all, are you? I'm not surprised by it, Jonathan, because I've been tracking these numbers all year. And in fact, I've been tracking these numbers for a decade and it just keeps getting worse and worse. Every month, it seems like another state or another batch of states have passed new voter suppression laws. This is now the greatest rollback of voting rights since the end of Reconstruction. And we are seeing all across the country, Republicans weaponize Trump's big lie to make it harder to vote. They haven't actually produced any evidence of voter fraud, but there's been a whole lot of evidence of voter suppression that has taken place since the last election. And what we really see here is that Republicans are using every avenue of power they have to make it harder to vote. And the asymmetric warfare here is that Democrats are not using all the levers of power they have to make it easier to vote. So one party is doing everything they can to rig the process in their favor, and the other party really isn't pushing back to counteract it. Well, Melanie Campbell, you're not one of those people who's not sitting back and and not doing so. Last week, you got arrested uh, at a voting voting rights uh, rally. Um, I'm assuming you're going to get out there and do it again. Today, Congressman Hank Johnson of Georgia and other black men from Black Voters Matter um, uh, were arrested on the House side. Um, What more do you need from either from Congress? We know what you need from Congress. Is there anything more that the president can do to to move things along? I think just continue uh, to elevate and escalate uh, from that bully pulpit. Uh, last night, he, he mentioned filibuster, right? You know, we're going to continue pushing to say uh, either end it or amend it, do whatever, and don't let voting rights be um, um, hemmed up 
uh, based on a process. Um, so I think that's really important. Uh, you, the last couple of meetings I've been in at the White House with our civil rights colleagues two weeks ago and with black women leaders and, and strategists last week with the vice president um, was really just to continue to say to them and encourage them and challenge them to just do just continue to do more because it's that kind of a, a threat to our democracy. Um, and, and as well, of, of course, as Congress. Okay, so there are two voting rights bills that we're talking about. There's the For the People Act, which was passed by the House in March. It's been sitting in the Senate uh, ever since and going nowhere. The other uh, piece of legislation everyone talks about is the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. It was introduced in the last Congress and went nowhere. It has yet to be introduced in this current Congress. And so, Ari, I'll start with you uh, with this question. To my mind— I think it's super important to get the For the People Act passed, get it passed in order to blunt the impact of what's happening in Georgia and Texas and Florida and other places. What do you say? Go for For the People Act or should we try to mush the two together? Well, in reality, we need both in a perfect world, Jonathan, because what the For the People Act does is it puts in place federal standards for elections in all 50 states. So they have policies like automatic registration and a ban on partisan gerrymandering and two weeks of early voting that apply equally to all 50 states, then the John Lewis Voting Rights Act were to require those states with the worst histories of discrimination to approve their voting changes with the federal government. So the For the People Act is like the carrot. It puts in place all of those good policies. And the John Lewis Voting Rights Act is like the stick that stops voter suppression efforts that have not yet occurred. Uh, the problem is that Republicans are not going to support either of these bills. So la last night, Joe Biden said, I want Republicans to get on board with these things. Well, no Republican voted to start debate on the For the People Act. And only one Republican, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, has sponsored the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. So the question is, if Republicans don't support these things and they're not going to, are Democrats prepared to use the power they have to protect voting rights, understanding that if Republicans are suppressing the right to vote, Democrats have to be willing to protect the right to vote, even if it means doing it unilaterally. And Melanie, I know you you think, like Ari, that both you need both of these bills. Give me your perspective. Uh, uh, good to see Ari, too, by the way. Thank you. Um, really, both of those bills, because at the end of the day, we have elections coming up and the t clock is ticking. So we have to get some get voting rights, federal uh, legislation passed this year or next year, not just the congressional races that are at stake, but those state races, those local elections. And, and when we talk about this, we, know, we tend to talk about it on a federal level, but it's down ballot, if you will, when you're talking about those, those elected officials who impact your lives down to the school board, the school, mm -hmm. city council, all that's used. And so the whole political process is will, will crumble because right now we, we we have a top here with the Voting Rights Act that has no teeth. We, we have these all these voter suppression laws and the American people have to speak up. And so I thank you for continuing to push this conversation so people know just how bad it really is. And it's not just about what's going to happen to black people. It's going it's about what's going to happen to this democracy. We won't have mm -hmm. one and it won't take long. You know what, Melanie Campbell? I'm going to leave it right there on that very excellent note. Melanie Campbell, Ari Berman, thank, thank you, you both very much for coming to the readout. Up next, the Justice Department is launching a new initiative targeting gun traffickers in response to the recent spike in violence. Will these new efforts make a difference, though? 
We'll be right back. The tragic epidemic of gun violence in America continues unabated following a series of deadly incidents across the country, including multiple shootings last night in Chicago. Attorney General Merrick Garland today launched a new effort to ramp up prosecutions of gun trafficking in five cities, Chicago, Washington, D.C., New York, Los Angeles and San Francisco. Attorney General Garland will meet with police and federal prosecutors in Chicago in the coming days and noted that the new plan comes in the midst of what he called a particularly difficult summer. A Washington Post analysis shows that after an increase in gun violence last year, this year is on pace to be worse. The Post analysis found an increase in shootings during summers, a trend noted by law enforcement and gun violence researchers. The new government effort does not involve sending additional law enforcement agents to those cities. Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco made that clear as she laid out the plan's goal. We all know that our job is to go after those who pull the trigger and end up uh, critically injuring and in some cases murdering uh, innocent people. Uh, But our job is also, of course, to go after the sources of those guns the corridors that they travel in and the networks that feed those guns to the places where they are doing uh, the most violent crime. Tonight, Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot praised the new federal plan's focus on targeting out-of-state gun purchases. Intelligence sharing, that's going to be a game changer for us. Being able to be aggressive, looking at those sales, following up to make sure that those guns are still in the hands of the person who bought them, that's going to be key. So I, I, I welcome those. And again, that to me, that's low-hanging fruit that should have been happening all along, but it didn't happen in the previous administration. It's going to happen now. Joining me now is Mark Claxton, retired NYPD detective and director of the Black Law Enforcement Alliance. Mr. Claxton, thank you very much for coming to the readout. I have to ask you, because I, I see this plan I, I, I heard what Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco had to say about what they what they're trying to do. But am I wrong in thinking that this has been done before or tried before? It absolutely has been done before. Uh, task forces are nothing new, especially and especially in New York. You have a joint terrorism task force. You have mm-hmm. DEA or drug enforcement task forces. You've even had these ATF gun task forces before. I think what's different about this operation is that they are really specifically targeting federal firearm licensees. They're dealing and addressing the uh, straw buys, straw purchases of firearms, etc. So I think it's a more targeted enforcement strategy. It's not about placing bodies on the street necessarily, uh, but targeting those uh, corridors and those areas and developing investigations within those areas hoping to disrupt the flow of firearms from state to state. The challenge is, and will continue to be, the lack of a substantive federal firearms mm-hmm. uh, trafficking legislation makes it almost impossible to really maximize uh, your effectiveness as a task force. And that's why they'll be relying on local city and state uh, uh, offices and investigative sources as well. 
No, no, no. So you, you put your you put your finger on what was going to be my follow up question. And that was, so why aren't they being successful? And it all comes back to good old Washington and the dysfunction here in terms of getting something on a federal level that makes it possible for police officers at the local level to actually disrupt the the I think we called it in New York, the iron corridor from Virginia to New York, the, the flow of guns. Right. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. That challenge exists and, and it's it's not accidental or incidental. It's a purposeful strategy. You know, there's always challenges when you're trying to deal with or address uh, guns uh, in this country, unfortunately, regardless of how tragic the consequences turn out to be. So that's what they're facing. And quite honestly, you'll never be able to uh, solely legislate the, uh, this problem away. And you have to really combine resources. And that's what I'm hoping that this uh, strike force, this, in essence, task force will mm-hmm. be doing forward. You know, Mr. Claxton, last year, actually a year ago, July 2020, here was an NBC headline. It said Trump says he's sending hundreds of federal law federal law enforcement officers to Chicago. This was that was going to be Donald Trump's response to the gun violence in Chicago. Can you explain why that kind of move of sending agents from the FBI, DEA and ATF um, isn't the proper way to go about stemming gun violence for in the long term? Well, first off, part of uh, the Trump plan back then was to send any 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 federal officers. So you had Border Patrol uh, officers that were also being sent into these areas. That's outside of their jurisdiction and understanding and comprehension. Really, this is a specialty. So ATF uh, inve- uh, investigates these firearm offenses, and they should be the key resource there. But once again, if you don't have the legislation in place uh, uh, to, to prosecute these violations of law, you find yourself spinning your wheels and running around and constantly arresting and rearresting and prosecuting mm-hmm. these individuals or even uh, simply charging the local or state charges for these firearms violations. It really needs a kind of a multidimensional approach, a, a comprehensive approach to dealing with the issues of violence and gun violence in particular, legislating it alone or operate operationally improving along uh, federal lines is not going to be enough to, to stem the tide, unfortunately. Well, you know, Mr. Clack said I was, was going to ask you, you know, is this enough of a start? And you've said repeatedly now that really what's needed is federal federal action, federal legislation to do something about this. But I'm also wondering, is there anything that localities can do along with what the attorney general is proposing now to really get at it? Because I think we spend too much time, uh, not too much time, we spend a lot of time focused on the gun violence, but I don't think we spend enough time focused on, well, what are the circumstances that are leading people into things that get them involved in violence. Yeah, and you and you really hit on the key point, what should be a key strategy across the nation, and that is recognizing and realizing that, that you, you can't solely police away uh, violent crime. And you have to look at the factors that contribute uh, to the existence of violent crime. You have to really examine a lot of socio-political issues and be prepared to address them. And then you have to think outside the box. You have to think innovatively about how to deal with violence in communities. And that involves incorporating some non-traditional resources. You're talking about 
violence interrupters, etc. But it's mm-hmm. important that we look outside the box in order to stem the tide of violence in our cities. Mark Claxton, thank you. We're going to have you, obviously, we're going to have you come back and talk about this more. Up next, a new high-profile Democratic contender from Iowa just announced she's making a bid for Republican Chuck Grassley's Senate seat. Former Congresswoman Abby Finkenauer joins me next. Stay with us. It's politicians like Senator Grassley and Mitch McConnell who should know better but are so obsessed with power that they oppose anything that moves us forward. Since the Capitol was attacked, they've turned their backs on democracy and on us. They made their choice. And I'm making mine. I'm running for the United States Senate because this democracy is ours and truth matters. Former Iowa Democratic Congresswoman Abby Finkenauer is officially running for Republican Chuck Grassley's Senate seat. Grassley, who's 87 years old and has been in the Senate since 1980, hasn't announced yet if he's going to seek another term. It's a tough race for a Democrat to win, though. Iowa, which used to be a purple state, has moved further to the right in recent years. Former Congresswoman Abby Finkenauer joins me now. Congresswoman, welcome to the readout. So I, I just have to ask you, why are you running? Because Iowa's my home, and this is our country, and both are worth fighting for. Um, there's so much work to do, both for Iowa and our democracy. And when 1-6 happened, it changed America and it changed me. And I know that folks that we, we send to the United States Senate have to know the difference between being public servants and being politicians. And I think it's time we actually have people that believe in the truth and aren't afraid afraid to stand up for it and fight for it. Now, you were first elected uh, in Congress in 2018 during the Democratic wave. Um, You lost, barely lost re-election in 2020. Um, So you weren't in the Capitol on on January 6th when that happened. Did that indeed play, well, one, actually, after losing your election, had you even given any thought about running for running for re-election two years later? Or was January 6th the thing that just pushed you over the edge to run for office again and to take on Grassley in particular? Yeah, you know, that day, I'll, I'll never forget it. I was sitting with my husband on our couch in Cedar Rapids as I'm watching live coverage of a violent mob that by misinformation and lies stormed the Capitol and attack my friends and my former colleagues. And as I'm watching this, I'm looking at my husband and we had wondered, you know, after 2020, um, you know, we, we got beat by misinformation. We got beat by lies. And we looked at that and we thought, okay, we don't let, to, let we don't, they don't get to keep lying. They don't get to keep pushing misinformation in our state and our country and not have us push back. And we realized it was time to speak the truth and speak it louder. And so I know what we're up against. I know what campaigns are. I know they're still going to you know, say what they want to say, lie about records, push misinformation. But we're going to be louder and we need you with us. Um, go to abbyfinkenauer.com and join us because we have got to have all hands on deck as we do this. I mean, what you're saying, I mean, you're not you're not lying about how tough this is going to be. Chuck Grassley won won uh, re-election in 2016 by 24 votes. Donald Trump won Iowa by eight votes in 2020 by nine votes. 
in 2016, 20 points, sorry, um, where we sit right now, um, how confident are you that you can make a dent, uh, make a dent there in Iowa? You know, when I ran for Congress in 2018, I was 28 years old. I came from a working class family, um, had no money of my own to put into a campaign. Uh, and I was told, you know, what are you doing? How are you going to beat a millionaire in Congress? Um, and folks didn't think that Iowa was worth fighting for, but I did. I proved them wrong and I'm going to do it again because my home is worth it. The working families in our country and in my state are worth it. I'm tired of having politicians in D.C. who just read about working families, study them, but haven't actually lived it. And so that's why we're going to win this. In 2018, I overperformed the top of ticket. I did the same in 2020. And we're going to take our message across the state. And again, make sure that Iowans know they have a champion who believes in them, who understands them, and isn't going to back down when it comes to the policies that actually move their families forward and actually make a difference around the kitchen tables in Iowa and, again, across the country. As I mentioned in the intro, Senator Grassley hasn't announced who's 87, hasn't announced whether he's going to run for re-election. You're sitting there in Iowa, take off your candidate hat. Do you think he'll actually uh, run for re-election? You know, I'm not sure. At the end of the day, this election is so much bigger than Senator Grassley. Again, it's about our democracy. It's about making sure that we have folks who believe in the truth and are going to stand up and and defend it. Um, it doesn't matter, and it shouldn't, whether you're a Democrat or Republican. We saw Senator right. Romney stand up when there was misinformation. We saw um, Liz Cheney do the same. And honestly, and 10 years ago, I thought that would have been Senator Grassley. Unfortunately, it's not anymore. And with that, we're going to leave it there. Former uh, Congresswoman Abby Finkenauer, thank you very much for coming to the readout. That's it for us tonight. When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com app.